Well, good evening. Hello. <laughs> Are we alive? <laughs> Are we well? It's uh, good to be here. I always enjoy doing the Lord's table. Um, very appropriate to do when we study the glory of God. And so I want to open in prayer just briefly, and then we will be in the word. And I will turn it over to Mike as we come to the table. And so, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the beauty of Christ. Thank you for loving us, redeeming us, saving us, doing all that was necessary for the multiplicity of our sins multiplied many times over by anybody else you'll ever save. That you take them upon yourself is beyond our comprehension. So may we worship you tonight in spirit and truth. And may you be glorified in what we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Mike, you are going to do a sign-up sheet for the books, is that right? And study guide, hopefully, goes with it? Okay. And we're going to do one out of the darkness and the glory tonight as far as the material that's found in there. So what we cover tonight is the opening part of a second book. If you want more information, I'll point you in the right direction. One final disclaimer, I get no royalties from the book or study guide, either one. And so I can talk about this freely without... You know, again, making it sound like my lemonade stand. If you have your Bibles handy, we'll be in a bunch of different places tonight. We'll start in Mark chapter 10. If you want to peek ahead, we'll be over in Matthew 20 just for one moment, and then over to John 13. We'll try to stay put for the most part, but it's important as we walk through this to set the table. So in Mark chapter 10, we saw this in our first session. This is the one where James and John come to Jesus and say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever it is we ask of you. What is it you want me to do? We want to sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. Now look at what it says with this. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able? And the Greek verb is denomai. You don't need to, <clears throat> you don't need to know that necessarily. <clears throat> Excuse me. You don't need to know that necessarily. Um, you may remember the... The noun form is where we get our word dynamite from. And so dynamite has to do with the power or the capacity to do something. And so are you able, do you have the power, do you have the capacity to drink the cup that I am drinking? And notice what it, how this is worded in Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, there's a present tense that's used. Are you able to drink the cup that I am already drinking? Are you able to drink the cup that I have been drinking for a long, long time? And so in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is presented as the suffering servant of Yahweh, actually the prophesied suffering servant of Yahweh. And so every aspect of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, really every aspect of the incarnation, involves the cup that he was drinking. He had drunk it up to that particular point. One sin, and he's disqualified. One bad day, and he's out. One thought followed upon that leads to sin. And our Savior is no longer the unblemished lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He's not allowed any mistakes. He's not allowed any second chance. And so in asking James and John, are you able, did am I, to drink the cup that I am already drinking? So it shows his entire life. And then we come to Matthew 20. There's a parallel passage it gives more information and points to the cross. In Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20, 
He doesn't use a future tense, but he points to the future aspect of what is getting ready to take place. Now, I love how Scripture leaves these little nuggets behind that we're often missed. Sometimes <clears throat> you may want to go back and, and read Mark 10, the passage we were in, verses 35 and following. Because in Mark 10, James and John come to, to Jesus. And look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Now Mama, New American Southern, now Mama, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, came to him with her sons. Now this is somewhat embarrassing, wouldn't you think? I mean, here's Mama and the two boys. And they're not two boys, really, they're men. And she comes and she asks, this is the parallel account. So she shows up. And look at what she says. You know, bows down, making a request to him. He said to her, verse 21, what do you wish? Now she said to him, command, and look at what she asked. That in your kingdom, these two sons of mine, Gomer and Goober, these two sons of mine, them in your kingdom, though, may sit one on your right and one on your left. What's the difference? difference is, in Mark chapter 10, James and John say, we want to sit in your glory. James and John knew glory. Mama knew kingdom. We saw in Mark chapter 9 at the transfiguration, they were told to tell nobody what they had seen until after the Son of Man be raised from the dead. So if they go to Mama, and Mama goes up and says, we want to sit, I want my boys to sit in your glory, it would be along the lines of Genesis chapter 3, when Adam said, I hid myself because I was fearful because I was naked, and God asked, who told you you were naked? So if Mama comes up and says, I want my boys to sit in your glory, who told you I had glory? So Mama knows kingdom. Mom does not, Mama does not know glory. She will one day. Now, with this, James and John take the forefront, and Mama kind of passes from the scene. And look what Jesus says in verse 22. But Jesus answered and says, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able, then am I, to drink the cup? And look at what he says. The cup which I am about to drink. And so he points to Jerusalem. He points to Calvary. He points to everything that's involved with the death. It's not just his life. The pinnacle of the cup that he would drink will be in Jerusalem. So all of this is involved around the cup. And the cup has a sense of fulfilling the task. And cups vary as far as in the sense of what God has in them throughout the Bible. And so with that background, if you will, over to John chapter 13. I want you to sh I want to see how God uses this, how it changes, how there's an emphasis that's added. Now John chapter 13, just to get the flow of this, I love the opening two verses, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Now before the feast of the Passover. And by the way, for those who are here this morning, you may want to peek over John chapter 12, verses 27 and following where we were this morning, the last public address of Jesus in this particular gospel. He went and hid himself, the Isaiah reference that we saw. So now in John chapter 13, he's alone with the 12. He has hours to live. It is the last Passover that he will celebrate until the kingdom comes. He says elsewhere that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in the kingdom. That's an unfulfilled promise of God so far. 
And so in John chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So Jesus is originally alone with the twelve. He dismisses Judas in John chapter 13, verse 27. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what do you, you do? Do quickly. And so Judas leaves, goes out the door. Very appropriately put in verse 30. So after receiving the morsel, he, Judas, went out. And it was night. So now Jesus is no longer with the twelve. He is with the eleven. Jesus is no longer with the eleven and one who did the eleven saved individuals and the one who did not believe him. Jesus is alone with only those who are saved. So Judas has gone out. He never was a believer. In Acts chapter 1 it says that he went to his own place at his death. That was not a reference to heaven. You'll never find an aspect of this. So Jesus alone with the 11. Now, from what we've seen in our studies previously, and those who weren't here, if you want to go back and listen to the downloads, they'll be available. But Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Having said, some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom coming with its power and its glory. He took three of them on the Mount of Transfiguration with him. And as he prayed, his face became brighter than the sun. And they hear the audible voice of God. They see Moses and Elijah. But they get a a glimpse of the glory of God on the face of Christ. Now, they don't know when Jesus is going to manifest his glory. I still think Peter, James, and John looked at Jesus differently the whole time. Riding in on what people call, and whoever came up with this ought to be spanked, sat in the corner, and made to think about what they came up with, to call the triumphal entry the triumphal entry. It's the lowly entry of the Messiah to die, the prophesied death that God had. You want the triumphal entry, go to Revelation 19. The heavens are open, he comes in a white stallion, his angels are with him. That's pretty triumphal. A man riding on a donkey to give his life. He says nothing when he comes in and, quote, the triumphal entry. I think Peter, James, and John would be looking, having seen the glory of God on the face of Christ. Is he going to do it now? Is he going to do it now? Is he going to do it now? And then look what takes place and listen to the words. And if they had heart monitors and EKGs back then, it would have been fascinating to have it on three of them. Three of them would understand better what is getting ready to take place more than the other eight because they didn't have a base of comparison. So Jesus leaves and then look at verse 31. When therefore he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God also will glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Five times some kind of form of the word glory occurs in these two verses. Five times. Plus you throw in the word now and immediately. So put yourself in Peter, James, and John's position. Watch this. Watch this. Watch this. Watch this. Now. Face. Elijah was tied in with a Passover. An empty chair is set by the Jews for Elijah to sit there. There's a Messianic prophecy. There's a second coming prophecy with this. Now, glory, 
glory, glory, glory, glory, immediately, and his face doesn't shine. And there's no audible voice of God. And so instead of showing forth his glory in the sense that they thought that he should, look what Jesus says, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Now look at what it says in verse 36. Simon Peter, his mind has cut off. Simon does not say, I have always wanted to be a more loving individual, and love has been a part of my life that I want to improve on. Jesus talks about now, immediately, glory five times. Then he speaks on love and loving each other. And Peter asks nothing about the love aspect. Peter's mind has cut off when Jesus says now and immediately. Then he goes to something else. And so Simon Peter says this. But you see, there's something very, very important. Because we left out a verse it's not just immediately in verse 32. Look what he says in verse 33. Jesus puts <clears throat> a restriction, a limitation. Little children, I am with you a little longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, and your translation may have cannot, is that what it says, you cannot come? It is the word denomai, the same word that's used in Mark 10, same word that is used elsewhere. Where I'm going, you do not have the capacity to go. This is not lack of permission. This is lack of their utter capacity to go where he is going. So he talks about glory immediately, now, and then he tells about separation. Then he tells about a new commandment that I leave to you, that you love one another. So as far as Peter is concerned, this makes no sense to him whatsoever. Never has Jesus told him not to come. When he walks on the water, if that's you, command me to come. Come on out. Takes him in with Jairus' daughters raised from the dead. Takes him to the Mount of Transfiguration. And now he says, this is, again, this isn't lack of permission. Back in my earlier days when I would train and run marathons, my son one time when he was about five or six years old, Daddy, can I go running with you? You can leave me behind now, sort of, be close, I guess. But when I'm going out to train for a marathon, I was going for a 20-mile run, and he's a six-year-old little boy. Where I am going, you are not Denomai able to go, right? You don't have the power. You don't have the capacity. You do not have the innate ability to go where I am going. You're restricted. And so instead of glory, separation. And then love one another. Peter's mind right now. And here's what Peter says. Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answers, where I'm going, you denomai. You cannot follow me, but you shall follow me later. And this is the account where Peter says, I'll lay down my life, literally, to pair in the Greek in place of yours. And then he denies him later in just a few hours. You see, we don't even qualify to go to Gethsemane, let alone to Calvary. We have long since disqualified. If you or I were there, we would have been included in this restriction. He alone is able. He alone is worthy. 
Now, a lot of people think it's automatic pilot with Jesus. Look what he says over in Mark chapter 14. He gives some of the details of Jesus in Gethsemane. I find it fascinating that he took the same three to Gethsemane that he took to the Mount of Transfiguration. So the ones who saw the glory of God on the face of Christ also saw the face of Christ on the ground. Big, big difference. Because if he doesn't pull this off, there's no plan B with God. If Jesus doesn't fulfill everything that God has. So in John chapter 14, verse 32, and he came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Verse 35, he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began praying that if it were possible, and the same root word for possible is denomai. If it's denomai possible, the hour might pass him by. Verse 36, and he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark 14, Jesus uses a Greek word that he never uses, or at least it's recorded in scripture that he uses. Abba, Papa, Dada. For those of you who have toddlers or are around toddlers, Abba would be a word that they would say. Abba, Daddy, Abba. The general word for father, the one Jesus used on a regular basis, was the word pater. We get our word paternal from that. Our pater who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your pater who is in heaven knows your needs. But in the private of Gethsemane, he uses both of them. He uses Abba, Papa, Daddy, close relationship, and pater. It's not that you couldn't have a close relationship if the word pater was used. It's just that Abba shows a very close, definitive relationship. And what he prays in Gethsemane in private is that if it's possible, this cup that he's already referred to in Matthew 20 that he's about to drink would be taken from him. Is there any way possible this can take place? Well, yeah, it's possible, but he would be outside the Father's will, which would make him disobedient and sinful, and Scripture would be broken. So in a sense, it's not possible. There's no other plan. There's no other option. This is it. So notice how it's changed. Back in John chapter 18 now, and we'll start winding down. I'll hand this to Mike in just a minute. In John chapter 18, Jesus is arrested. Judas is there. There are other matters we'll leave till a future time, Lord permitting. But in verses 10 and 11, look what takes place. You're familiar somewhat with the account. They come to arrest him. The Roman guard does. The temple guard does. Verse 11, verse 10 rather, I'm sorry. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Now look at verse 11. Jesus, therefore, said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. And look at what he says. The cup, there are four items with this, the cup with a definite article. 
It's not a cup. It is the cup. It is definitive. It is the cup that he has prayed for Abba to remove, if possible, from him. And Abba, in this case, says, no, you have to drink the cup. And the cup involved what was necessary to save everybody who will ever be saved. My sins are in the cup that he drank. Your sins are in the cup that he drank. The cup, which the pater, father, not Abba, which the pater. He uses Abba in private. He doesn't use Abba in the presence of the enemies. The cup with a definite article defined, which the father. And there's a perfect tense that's used in the Greek, has given me. The cup that the Father has given him has already been defined. It's not going to be unfolding as Jesus is on the cross. It is handed to Jesus before he goes there. The perfect tense indicates completed action, ongoing results. The cup, which the pater, Father, has given to me, perfect tense, shall I, ooh, may, by no means whatsoever, drink all of it. He uses the same word that Peter used in Matthew 16 when he says, this by no means, ooh, may, in the Greek, by no means whatsoever will this ever happen to you. In John 18, Jesus uses this. Shall I by no means may not drink of this? And so one last thing before we hand it over to Mike. Isaiah chapter 52. I'm not trying to prime the pump or push this. This was the base of the study for the darkness and the glory. For the second glory book. Because there are matters related to the death of Jesus that's different than anybody else's. Chapter divisions are man-made divisions. Some of you are probably familiar <coughs> with Isaiah 53, right? Familiar verses out of there. What a lot of people don't realize is that it actually starts in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. Verse 53 says, who has believed our report? What report? The report of verses 13, 14, and 15. But look what it says. We'll just do two of these, verses 13 and 14. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, my people. And look at what it says in reference to the one of whom Isaiah 53 refers. So his appearance was marred more than any man. In his form more than the sons of men. You've got two options with this. This is either the truth, literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the truth, or it's some kind of hyperbole exaggeration in Scripture. Now, I'd be real careful to say it's an exaggeration because the next verse talks about him sprinkling the nations clean, which involves our salvation. So the cup that he was about to drink... It says that his appearance was marred more than anybody, and his appearance more than anyone who has ever lived. The crucifixion that he did, that he endured, contained elements that nobody else ever had or ever could endure. A lot of times people think his automatic pilot with Jesus is easy for him. No, it wasn't. It was not. And if he doesn't drink the cup that the Father has given him, Adam goes to hell, Eve goes to hell, Moses goes to hell, David goes to hell, Daniel goes to hell. 
Simon Peter, Mary and Joseph, you, me, anybody with us. There's more to the story, as you can figure. But let us worship the one who alone was able to go and drink the cup that the Father had given him. And let us rejoice in his victory that he shares with us.